0: An intensely flavored, delicious sauce can be the most memorable part of a meal, whether it's a spicy puttanesca served over pasta or a rich, creamy bechamel served over roasted vegetables. For this week's Please Explain, award-winning cookbook author, photographer, and cooking teacher James Peterson stops by to talk about sauces from bolognese and hollandaise to bolognese, creme anglaise, and everything in between. His book, Sauces, Classical and Contemporary Sauce Making, won the James Beard Award when it was first published in 1991, and it is being released in a fourth edition by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I think it's in bookstores next week. I'm very pleased that it has brought James Peterson back to our show for today's Please Explain, and we invite you to join the conversation. If you have any questions for uh, this guy who knows everything, uh, give us a call at 212-433-9692. Um, if you have questions about sauce making or the like, uh, give us that call. Or you can write to us on our show page at Wmyc.org or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Welcome back. Leonard, thank you for having me back. In your preface to this fourth edition, you write, To prepare a sauce well, one must know how to cook. Just how nuanced is sauce making?
1: Well, it's, it's a little bit the apotheosis of a dish. You Say you're cooking a, a sautéed chicken, as an example, and you take the chicken out and you throw the butter out or whatever fat you've used and you deglaze the pan and you have this little bit of jus, whatever you want to call it, or the base for a more complicated sauce. It nuances the things like how much water to add to that pan. It'll depend on how hot it is. It'll evaporate to a certain degree. You, you try to avoid deglazing it more than once. There, there are little tricks to it to make it viable because otherwise, if you add a cup of water, to a little pan, you have a, you have bouillon, you have broth. You don't have a ghee. <laughs> now,
0: was sauce making one of the first things you learned when you started cooking professionally?
1: Well, I've always liked chemistry, I'm fooling around with liquids and mixing things. And when I went to France it seemed like the most overwhelmingly delicious, wonderful things were sauces. And I couldn't discern what was in them or how they were made. It was very frustrating to me. And that's why I went back to France specifically to learn that.
0: I had a friend who was a French chef here in New York, and he complained that uh, people were not uh, as interested. Chefs were not as interested in making sauces as they had been in the past. That's why he started teaching sauces. Um, has have sauce making techniques and an interest in making the wide range of sauces changed much since you was since you published the first edition?
1: It seems there's a paucity of sauces. I was in, in France just recently in Paris, and and I noticed this sort of sauceless thing or this little swipe you see a little dribble on a plate, you can't even taste it, what's the point? It looks pretty, and maybe there's a little balsamico or or some such thing, but it's not a sauce. And there was that article in the Times about the mother sauces, one was like a Mexican thing, I don't remember, excuse me. It's called salsa in Mexico. (laughs) Salsa, exactly, but they were trying to construe this as mother sauces, when in fact, a mother sauce implies their derivatives. And these don't necessarily, they're improvisations. One can base on them, but they're not really, they don't provide derivatives. Would you encourage
0: cooks to improvise when they're making sauces?
1: Absolutely. That's the whole trick. That's the whole fun of it. When you cook and you learn, you learn these things, you get a knack for things. It's when you improvise that you're really being creative. You include
0: elements of modernist cooking in this edition. What are hydrocolloids? Why are they used in sauces? Well,
1: hydrocolloids are are compounds that create colloids or emulsions. So in other words, say you're making a hollandaise and you need it to be stable, you can add a hydrocolloid to it that will maintain the emulsion. Now, the initial reaction that anyone has to this is skepticism because it sounds like you're adding chemicals to your food. And I had that initial reaction too. I was very hesitant, reticent to to get into this. But I've discovered that most of them are from seaweed or algae or they're relatively benign substances. So I felt free to use them. And they have many useful aspects.
0: Now why did you think it was important to include a brief history of sauce making? Uh, You say we can trace sauce making back to the ancient Greeks and and Romans?
1: Yeah, oh sure. Not, Not the Chinese? I'm not sure the Chinese go farther back. I just don't know anything about the Chinese. So you're you're thinking very much in Western
0: Western. Terms.
1: I tend to. Mm-hmm.
0: And they, were the Greeks and the Romans already talking about the importance of sauces?
1: Well, there was Apicius wrote a cookbook, which I have it's in Latin, but it's also translated, which talks about all kinds of sauce making, and the base for their sauce was garum, liquidum, liquidum. They called it and it was a, like a fish sauce from any description i can gather it was like a thai fish sauce and they used it on everything so who knows what their food tasted like well
0: it had everything had to have similar taste if you're using Fishy, the same sauce
1: one would think <laughs> and yet thai but that's like nuanced. working with
0: anchovies today no exactly
1: sure that kind of accent unami thing i guess
0: is there a, a, a better kind of pot to use for sauce making? Are some materials, copper, stainless steel, better than others?
1: Well, the most important thing, Len, is to keep it thick, that the gauge of the metal be thick. Because if you put a pan, say you put a thin pan on, the st- on a high heat on a, on a gas flame, well, the heat is going to go right into the center of the vessel and likely warp the thing because the heat doesn't disperse evenly so the center expands, blah, 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 and it warps it. But if you try to cook something in that, it's gonna burn in that hot spot and the heat's not gonna reach around to the edge. My favorite is tinned copper, but that's not, most people aren't crazy that way. What about cast iron? Cast iron's great. The only thing about cast iron is that it's black and if you're deglazing it, you can't see the condition of the, of the caramelized juices.
0: Would it be a good choice for making acidic sauces because it rusts easily? I wouldn't
1: think so. I've never actually experimented with that, but what I would if, imagine What about not. making
0: a sauce in a pressure cooker?
1: Well, I've tried making broth, and a lot of people swear by that, but I find it makes them greasy, the broth greasy. So I've given up on that. I'm speaking with James Peterson,
0: whose, I can't say latest book, but the latest edition of his classic book, Sauces, Classical and contemporary sauce making, the fourth edition, has just been rele- is being released by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt uh, next week. Uh, this is WMYC WMYC.org. dot org. I'm Let it Low, but it's out on Tuesday, I gather. Um, we have um, we've inviting our we're inviting our listeners to join the conversation. Our number here is two one two four three three nine six nine two and I don't want to keep Andrew hanging on too long. Andrew from is it Oldwick, New Jersey?
2: Yes, yes.
0: Welcome to our show.
2: Thank you. Every August, we get cases
0: of fresh tomatoes and make marinara sauce, which we use all, all year long. We cook it down as thick as we can, and
2: then we jar it. But whenever we make a sauce with it and season it to whatever dish we're having, we put it over our drained pasta And there's always a pool of water in the bottom of the uh, bowl. It seems to separate, no matter how thick it is in the pan when we're preparing. How can I avoid this?
1: That's a good question. It's one I've addressed just in this latest edition because the kind of thing you're talking about, I think of like if you put a carrot puree on a plate and you look at it after five minutes, there's a little ring of water around it. You can use a hydrocolloid for that, which is a compound made, there are various, there are various sources of them, but they're usually organic, and they're made from natural things. Uh, can you get them in the supermarket? No, you have to order them, I'm afraid.
0: So order them
1: online? I'll order them online, And you sure. look up hydrocolloid? Hydrocolloid, there's specific ones in the book. And there's a specific one for that. I forget what it is, I think it's xanthan gum.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, xanthan gum which we see in an awful lot of ingredients lists yes, 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 because it works that way it keeps these things all together it
1: stabilizes them, yeah, so that you don't get that water separation thing so Andrew,
0: uh, maybe the uh, ancient correct. Romans didn't use xanthan gum in their pasta sauces but you can I will have to try it, thank you very much good luck uh, we go now to Kate from Brooklyn, hi you're on the air
1: yeah, hi, thanks. Um, my question is, I've been fancying buying a carbon steel pan, which I keep seeing on that new website, well, new to me, Food 52, and it's the Moviel brand, which they make the beautiful copper pans, and the carbon steel is supposed to be gaining like a, with the right seasoning, and becomes nonstick.
2: What does your guest think of that?
1: Well, I'm, I love uh, carbon steel, and Moviel is a good brand, so the important thing, as I mentioned earlier, is the gauge of the metal. You want it rather thick, and Moviel makes very good products, so I'm sure it's thick enough. Um, and carbon steel I like. The only sometimes problem with carbon, carbon steel pans is you have to deglaze them. And that can sometimes pull in some of that metallic taste. For example, if you cook something in that pan, you deglaze it with vinegar, you might have a little bit of a problem. But in terms of just sauteing, the pure act of making an omelet or a piece of chicken or fish or something, they're beautiful. They're perfect. Ah, okay. Thank you very much. Good luck.
0: Before we get to some more calls, I have a bunch of questions. You make the distinction between integral and non-integral sauces. What's the difference?
1: An integral sauce is a sauce that is the result of a cooking process, like my deglazed pan uh, or a braising liquid from a stew. When you manipulate that into a sauce or a poaching liquid or any number of uh, derivatives from the process of making the sauce, those are integral sauces. Um, The other sauces are uh, to uh, replicate that or to emulate it with stock or bouillon, and they're made completely independently of the food you're cooking.
0: And an early section of your book is devoted to stocks, glazes, and essences. Uh, I, I never thought of stocks as sauces.
1: They're the, they're the basis for a lot of it. And the, the one of the most important things you can do if you're making good sauces is to be very careful with your broth. It doesn't have to be expensive or anything like that, but you have to uh, skim it very carefully to make sure there's no fat in it or particles so it's nice and clear and has a clear flavor. You have
0: a recipe for fish stock or fish uh, fumet. Should we add fish bones to the flavor the fume?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Do you like I, bones in, in most of the stocks? Chicken well, stock? Oh, sure, I use bones as long as they're fresh enough. Some people go to the fish market, ask for fish bones, and they get all these rancid fish bones. But if I take a fish, I'll, I usually buy whole fish, I'll fillet it and use those bones for sure. You can't cook them too long though, or they get fishy. What are some ways to
0: improve a stock's flavor? Uh, should we caramelize ingredients, add
1: gelatinous ingredients like pork rind and, and knuckle bones? It depends on what you're using it for. If you want a lot of gelatin, say so you're using it to make a, a chauffeur or a gelée of some sort, then you need gelatin in there, of course, in the form of bones or some such thing. Um, but in uh, other times you want the the emphasis to be on the flavor of meat, in which case you use meat and fewer bones. What about using wine in the stock?
0: Uh, can you get a good result using an inexpensive wine? I
1: avoid it, simply because I don't want to define the character of the stock too much because it's it's there as a backdrop and I want to be able to manipulate it later depending on what sauce I'm going to make. So instead of doing that, I would most likely uh, use the wine in the cooking and then combine that with the concentrated bouillon. I boil the bouillon way down into a glaze. Is it true that you shouldn't use too much liquid in the stock? That is true. People add too much. And what about allowing a
0: stock to boil? Is that no, a bad No, that's idea? very bad. <laughs> very bad. What's the best way to store stock after you've made a batch? Can you just put it in the freezer?
1: Sure. But the one thing people make the mistake is if you're cooling stock, especially a large amount of it, don't put it on ice immediately because there's no need to. You wait till it gets, cools down in the room until about 140, which starts your danger zone. And then you ice it underneath, or you can even put a bag of ice in it to get it to say 60 or some safe zone. Then you put it in the fridge till it gels, then you freeze it. Let's take
0: another call. Uh, our number here, by the way, is 212-433-9692. Josh from Brooklyn, you're on the air.
2: Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. My question to you is, unfortunately, I had to move from an apartment that had a gas stove and to an apartment that has an electric stove, and I've been having problems uh, sort of burning my bechamel sauce. And I'm wondering if, you, if your guest has any recommendations on pans for cooking on an electric cookstop,
1: cooktops. Well, one thing, Josh, that I, that I encountered in France was these flat tops. And you regulate the heat not by adjusting the flame, but by sliding it closer or farther from the heat source. Right. So what I do with an electric stove depending on how it's set up, if the coils are inset, blah, blah, blah. But I move the pan, and the pan has to be heavy bottom because I need it to conduct the heat, but I'll just move it off, say, a half off the flame or off the heat source, and I'll whisk up and I'll control it like that rather than constantly trying to manipulate and get the exact temperature of the electric stove, which is, as you know, practically impossible. Right. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, Definitely. Thank you very much. And thank you
1: for your call. we're
0: going to take a little break. I'm speaking with James Peterson, who is the author of more than 15 books, including Glorious French Food, Cooking, and Baking. Uh, He was trained as a chef um, and has taught at the International Culinary Center, uh, formerly the the French Culinary Center in, in downtown Manhattan. His book, Sauces, now in its fourth edition Will be released next Tuesday We're talking about sauces on today's Please explain The The book is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Stay with us for more And we are back with James Peterson On today's Please explain We're talking about sauces His book, Sauces, Classical and Contemporary Sauce Making Published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Is now in its fourth edition, and we are taking your calls at 212-433-9692. Uh, you can also write to us on our show page at WMIC.org, or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Before we get to the, the next call, uh, I'm just wondering about why a fourth edition? Have, has it changed all that much over the, 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 the course of years that you've had to keep on doing new editions?
1: Well, it has in the sense that um, people are using much less cream and butter now. And when I first wrote sauces, it was about integrating la nouvelle cuisine with classic cuisine and showing how they related. Well, now there has come along molecular cuisine and all these weird things, so I decided to make a third level in which that those are integrated also into into the classic uh, sauce structure. So that 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 was the raison d'être for uh, having a third or fourth edition. You devote a
0: section to liaison. Uh. That's what, when we put things like flour
1: in something as a, a thickener? Oh, that was a crazy project. I had these viscometers from uh, China that measure the viscosity. And I compare them on that chart. I don't know if you see that chart. It was a chart that shows the thickening power of each one. So you can compare, say you have a bourbon, blanc, and you're making something and you want that same consistency. You know how much butter to add or how much xanthan gum or how much flour or whatever you, your what, choice is. What about arrowroot and cornstarch, which is
0: uh, popular in Asian cooking? Oh, yes.
1: They're all in there. Mm-hmm. What
0: should we be aware of if we're using egg yolks to, to thicken a sauce like a, a creme anglaise?
1: Well, you just have to not let them boil, basically. When I make a creme anglaise, they always say when you make a creme anglaise to stir it with a wooden spoon, of course, and then when it's about ready, you measure, you, you take your finger and you make a line on the wooden spoon and you see if it drips. Well, I never could get that to work. Mm-hmm. So I just watch the consistency. And you get all these little ripples as you stir it from the top and then as, it, as it's ready, it turns into this velvety, silky, lovely texture and you take that off the heat and keep stirring for a bit. It doesn't curdle.
0: One of the big problems is sometimes you want to take care of something else while these things are on the stove, and you always seem to come back a minute too late. Oh, come on, guys! No, don't do that. Come on, Glass. be there, hundred percent attention, stand over it the whole mm-hmm. time. Justin from Rye, New York, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? Okay, Justin, what do you want to talk uh, about?
2: I've I've worked in some hotels, and uh, my question is about uh, making beef stock. I've watched chefs uh, roast the bones in the oven with the mirepoix and and when they t- they take it out of the oven they pour off all the all the fat but isn't part of that fat marrow from the bones and, and don't you want that marrow to go into the broth because it's so much flavor? I've always argued with them well, thinking they should, they should pour it into the broth.
1: I hate to tell you but it's right. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to spoil a morning. Now the reason is, uh, Justin, that fat, the flavor of certain compounds like marrow or whatever is soluble in fat but it's not soluble in in aqueous liquid so what happens when you add all that fat it doesn't harm it it's no there's no harm in it but you're ending up having to skim it off because you as you're simmering this broth you're skimming off the fat you want to get rid of every speck of fat but
0: how do you keep the marrow in there when you're skimming off the fat
1: well, first off, you shouldn't be using marrow bones for this. You should be using knuckle bones, which don't really have any marrow. If you're using marrow bones, you're going to get a bunch of fat, and you're going to get bone with no gelatin. So you don't want to use marrow bones for making a, a beef a sock.
2: These are like large batches where they do, you know, 100 pounds of bones at a time or something
1: like that. Mm-hmm, sure.
2: Uh, okay, well, that's... Uh, I that's hope that's helpful. Good. Yeah, uh, one more follow-up. There's a, a method I heard where you... I think it's a Chinese method uh, where you just put the bones into the broth cold, into the water cold, and, and then slowly bring it up. And, oh. and uh, you don't get a lot of color that way, but I think you get a better flavor. Do you have a, an opinion Well, on
1: that? there's Well, there are classic white stalks and brown stalks. Now, if you're making a stock with veal or beef bones and you don't brown them first, that's a white stock. But what you must do is blanch them. You have to start them in cold water, bring it slowly to the simmer, and you'll get all this gunk. It'll turn gray, it'll smell like soap. And you drain them, rinse them off, then you make your stock. You add your water, or if you wanna make a double stock, you add bouillon, and you cook it and simmer it for however many hours. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, What are the the
0: five French mother sauces? Uh, Are they the base for all sauces?
1: Not all sauces, Leonard, but certainly the French hierarchical system, they they have their place. Are all traditional white sauces
0: prepared with milk or with white stock, uh, thickened with uh,
1: a white roux and uh, finished well, with heavy cream? Well, classic sauces, it depends on what they are. I made a Blanquette de veau for my brother and his wife who were visiting from California and- Your brother's a lucky person. Well, he, he and his wife, they were there and we were having lunch the day before and the blonde was basically a veal stew thickened with flour and there, there are mushrooms and little pearl onions and things on it. And so I had made this and the day before my, uh, my brother's wife says, well, I don't eat gluten. So I thought, well, I can't use flour to thicken this and it's a classic thickened with flour. It doesn't look or taste right if it's not thickened with flour. So I thickened it with cornstarch, and it came off as the banal veal stew. It didn't work. So you have to choose your liaison very carefully. What is a a bechamel sauce? Basically, in its most basic form, it's simply milk flavored with flour. I mean, thickened Mm -hmm. with flour. With a roux, you make a roux, you cook butter and flour together, you add milk, you bring it to the simmer. Usually you add a a little pinch of uh, cayenne or nutmeg. I like to make a sweat mirepoix first and then add the flour and the milk to that. This is a little more complexity.
0: We have put your recipe for bechamel sauce with cauliflower gratin on our website. What other dishes pair well with the bechamel?
1: Well, things that are light flavor, that are gentle flavor. And I think you chose a good example because they're wonderful for gratins. For anything you want to bake with cheese and gooey things like that, a bechamel is perfect. It, how is a bechamel different from a Mornay sauce? Oh, a Mornay is just a bechamel with cheese put in. Mm-hmm. That's all the difference. And then what's a velouté? The velouté is like a bechamel, except that instead of flour, using broth.
0: And you write that a sauce allemande is thickened with egg yolks. So that's. Uh, a, another variation? That's
1: another variation. Now
0: mm-hmm. no, that's uh, sauce element, that's, a creme, that's different than a creme anglaise?
1: <laughs> yes, because it's based on flour. It has flour,
0: the classic does. Your recipe for sauce poulette, mushroom and lemon sauce, or, or tarragon sauce, uh, is a, a derivative of that?
1: Yes, it would be. Mm -hmm. Well, a listener
0: asks about whether you can use chanterelle mushrooms to make a sauce.
1: Oh, why not? Sure. I would sauté them, maybe sprinkle them with some fresh thyme, uh, sauté them in whatever fat you have that's the best. Duck or goose fat would be best, but uh, in lieu of that, some butter. And cook them until they they caramelize. And chanterelles are easy because they don't have a lot of water in them. And you they, and they wait till the pan caramelize a little, and add a little broth or water to that, and, you, and a little butter, and swirl it all up. You have a sauce.
0: Mm-hmm. Chanterelles have a very short season, and I was told that uh, if you can get a lot of them, if you find a place where chanterelles are growing, get as many as you can, and then sauté them in butter and freeze the ones that you don't use, and you can just take them out and, during the year and they'll give you that chanterelle flavor.
1: Oh, I, I would imagine that would work fine, sure.
0: An- another listener asks if you know anything about a Madeira soy sauce for steak.
1: Not, th- I have no idea about <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. Madeira and soy
0: uh, are really emerging of two very different cultures.
1: They are, and soy sauce is amazingly powerful. I, I had a drop here and now and then with soy sauce like I might vinegar, to to liven things up. You write
0: that until the 17th century, most brown sauces for meat were derived from the natural cooking juices of roasted and braised meats. Are most brown sauces now prepared differently?
1: We use bones. We can't afford to use meat to make brown sauces. I have, and that's why my restaurant went broke. But usually you have to use bones.
0: <laughs> you were... It was costing you too much to, to serve things at the at the, the going rate?
1: Well, we used to make a lot of dishes with integral sauces. We did a braised uh, veal shoulder in which the the juices that were released from that thing, we'd let them caramelize, and then we'd moisten and we'd cook that thing. That was the most delicious liquid mm-hmm. you have ever can ever imagine.
0: Is gravy considered uh, to be a brown sauce? Oh, sure.
1: Mm-hmm. My mother used to make a
0: great giblet gravy. Uh, You have uh, a section on mayonnaise-based sauces. Now, mayonnaise uh, is is an—is that—could we call mayonnaise a sauce? Oh, of course. It's one of the mother sauces.
1: Why is it so versatile?
0: Well, you can flavor
1: it in a million ways. It's just egg and oil. I know, but it's just— when you make homemade mayonnaise, if you've been eating it out of a jar your whole life, it's just a revelation. And there's so many things you can do with it. You can play it with curry and spices and herbs and different. There, I give probably 20 variations in there. Isn't aioli uh, a mayo-based sauce? Yes, it's just with garlic. Mm-hmm. And uh, olive oil is usually stirred in also.
0: That early caller talking about pasta sauces uh, reminds me that Every region of Italy has its own traditional pasta sauce. Um, Some use tomatoes, some don't.
1: Exactly. and until It depends on where you are? It depends on where you are, yes. In the north, they're less likely to use tomatoes than they are in the south. Do some
0: uh, pasta sauces work better with certain pasta shapes? Bolognese is often paired with
1: rigatoni or, or spaghetti. Well, I base the shape on how much sauce I want to get in a mouthful. If I want just a little coating of like a creamy sauce, like an alfredo, I'll use long noodles, like tagliatelle or fettuccine or pappardelle, something like that, that not too much sauce will cling to. Whereas if I have a bolognese, or I want that meaty, delicious sauce, then something like rigatoni is perfect.
0: Some Italians call their red sauce a gravy instead of a sauce.
1: Is that just a language thing? I think it's just a language. Mm -hmm.
0: What's the best way to make a simple puttanesca sauce?
1: What's the simplest way? Well, it has olives and capers. I forget my own stuff here. Olives and capers, and it doesn't have tomatoes, as I recall. You just add the ingredients and combine them. I don't think there's any trick to it.
0: What about adding meat to... Uh, Italian sauces like ragu's. How, how does adding meat change the cooking process
1: and the texture of the sauce? Well, the meat gives it a lot of consistency. I was taking meat. One of the tricks is to take the meat and cut it by hand. If you see a lot of sauces, uh, burinese sauce, they use ground meat. Mm-hmm. And the problem with ground meat is as soon as you put it in the pan, it releases water. So if you are using ground meat or finely diced meat, you have to add to the pan a few at a time. Otherwise, you'll get, you'll get this horrible, it's horrible. It's like the meat releases all these juices, but they're pale, unappealing juices. And you have to boil them down to caramelize them. And so you wanna add just a few to the pan at a time. You
0: devote a section to dessert sauces. Isn't creme anglaise one of the most versatile of the dessert sauces? Yes. I love creme anglaise. What, what would you serve it with? Well,
1: one of my favorite things. In fact, we're entering the holiday season. Is to make eggnog. I make eggnog with creme anglaise. I don't use raw eggs. I take creme, basically creme anglaise and, and um, whipped cream I, and vanilla, of course, in the in the creme anglaise, a vanilla bean, and I fold that all together. And then I add whiskey or brandy or whatever it is. I'm so you can add bettering. anything. You can add coffee. You can add, add fruit. Certainly. Mm -hmm. What about a ganache? Is that
0: fairly easy to make?
1: That is the easiest. You bring cream. uh, Say you bring bring equal, you figure out equal amounts of chocolate and cream. You bring the cream to the simmer. You take it off the heat. You put the broken up chocolate in the pan with the cream. You don't do anything. You wait five minutes, stir it, and it's done.
0: Now, in making a caramel sauce, you have the problem of, Getting it the timing just right. That's
1: a little trickier for people who haven't done it before, because well, one thing people always say when making caramel sauce is to combine the sugar with water at the beginning. I don't bother with that because you're just waiting for the water to evaporate. Take your caramel takes so, takes off. So I just add the sugar to a heavy bottom pan, and stir it. It becomes perfectly clear, like almost looks like sort of some sort of molten plastic. And then it gradually reddens, browns. And it's that very point at which you, you don't, if you take it too far, of course, it's burnt and it tastes bitter. But if you don't take it far enough, it's insipid. You just nail it just so.
0: At what point in the, the cooking process do you add cream to a caramel cream sauce?
1: Instead of adding water to the caramel to make a caramel syrup, I just add the cream to the molten caramel and it bubbles up and looks crazy, and, but then it's this wonderful sauce.
0: Do you find when people talk to you about this, about your books, your, your, your sauce editions, that uh, this is an area that, they are, that mystifies most home
1: cooks? It does mystify people, and the way it mystified me, that's why it drove me, made me crazy to learn it. It was very hard to learn it because I had to fight my way into these French restaurants.
0: And the chefs didn't in those days didn't want to share their secrets.
1: It wasn't so much to that it was just very hard to get a job in a three-star restaurant in France when you barely speak the language. And <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> we have f-
0: this book over six hundred pages, sauces, classical and contemporary sauce making from James Peterson, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Thank you so much for being
1: on Let our show. no, thank you.